This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Pete and his hubby are flying around the world on your dime. Joe Biden is attempting words again, and House Republicans are struggling. It's the first week of the new year. It's time to name the inaugural losers of week one of 2023. The show starts now. So as you know, thousands of Americans celebrated their holly jolly holidays in ye olde festive airport after Southwest Airlines wet the bed with flight delays up the wazoo. Now, if you'll recall, Pete vowed tough consequences, though it remains to be seen what those are or were. But perhaps Pete isn't so concerned with the delays and cancellations impacting commercial airlines and their travelers, given he and his hubby-wubby Chaston like to do their traveling via private or military plane and, yes, on your dime. Loser number one this week, well, they are the Buddha judges, who reportedly took a nice little trip to see the Invictus Games in the Netherlands last April via military taxpayer-funded jet. Oh, goody, a romantic European escapade for Pete and Chaston. What an excellent use of resources. I mean, shoot, if he's taking a military jet to Europe, might as well have dropped it off in Ukraine since that's where all of our military assets seem to end up anyway. Folks, Pete took office in February 2021, and since he's flown nearly 20 times on private jets funded by taxpayers, who wants to break the news to Greta, or is she still busy trying to be a Twitter comedian? Anyway, on to loser number two this week, and yes, it's Joe Biden. He spoke again this week, and as per usual, it didn't go well because it was, as per usual, undecipherable. Traveled over 140 countries around the world. So I'll paraphrase the phrase in my own neighborhood. The rest of the countries, the world's not a patch on our genes. If we do what we want to do, we need to do. It's never been a good bet. Think about why the recession got so bad two years ago. Cars got so expensive. We didn't have semiconductors. Scores of them are in the engines of every automobile. We invented them. And then we went to sleep. I'm not really sure why Joe brought up patches and jeans. That was just another bizarre Bidenism. But that second clip, well, that's even better because Joe doesn't know why everything started to go to crap starting two years ago, conveniently forgetting he came into office two years ago. Someone went to sleep, Joe, but it was mostly just you. But I can't be too hard on Joe this week because even in his current state, his party still supports him, which is more than I can say for Kevin McCarthy. So on to my final loser of the week, the new Republican House majority, if you can call it that. Now, a lot of conservatives are divided on the performance of our House Republicans in week one. Some call it the democratic process at work, while others are frustrated and rightfully so at the disorganized cluster F we displayed as our party's first act. I'll tell you this, I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed that after waiting years for this majority back, we decided to waste week one like this. How many illegals poured across our border while y'all threw spaghetti at the wall and hoped it would stick? Now, that doesn't mean I wanted them to just hand the gavel to McCarthy on vote one and be done with it. I never liked McCarthy as our pick, and a lot of Republican voters have vocally shared in that sentiment for months now. 
So why was this the week one y'all delivered to your voters? You're giving Nancy Pelosi something to lick her chops and her dentures at. Not good. One thing, though, thank God they weren't in the majority on January 6th. Because that was the day you had to be organized to stave off what was happening, to save our democracy, to certify the election of the president. They didn't even vote for the certification when Republican um, officials from around the country confirmed uh, the validity of the vote. She found a way to make this about January 6th. Gotta hand it to her. Now, look, I'm not saying the House GOP is made up of a bunch of losers, but I hope you all start acting like winners sooner or later because you've got a mandate from your voters and a country to save, so enough with the shenanigans. Still ahead, from analyzing the freak who allegedly murdered those Idaho students to the sewage overflow over at the FBI and DOJ, I have some questions that only a former FBI agent could answer. Jonathan Gillum is on deck. stabbings of those Idaho college students have gripped the nation for months and though the authorities finally have their alleged killer we're still left with more questions than answers starting with that monster himself that freak who by all accounts so far has no criminal past was a quadruple homicide really his first evil act is he your stereotypical sociopath or is there something more that lies beneath those dead eyes and what about the unconventional way investigators reportedly matched his DNA using a public genetic genealogy database so many questions, so creepy, all of it. Joining me now with his unique take on this story and so much more is former FBI Special Agent Jonathan Gilliam. All right, Jonathan, I have so many questions for you, and we're going to start with Idaho because this case, mm -hmm. kind of like the Gabby Petito case, people are talking about it, people are really invested in it, and with all the twists and turns, it's kind of hard to keep up. But I want to start with the, the killer, the alleged killer himself. I don't say his name because I don't think we need to glorify him, but... From what you've seen and what you've heard so far, was a quadruple stabbing, murder, really his first criminal act? And how common is that? I don't, well, it's not common, that's for sure. But I don't, I think we may find out, uh, based on his behavior, uh, before when he was in Pennsylvania, I, we, I've read some uh, reports that he had some very odd uh, encounters with women in a, uh, a brewery and uh, that he was asked to leave and then had a confrontation with the manager. And so the, the types of behavior that he presented was of the dark triad. If we add all these things together, which is uh, Machiavellianism, uh, narcissism, and uh, a psychopathic type of behavior. So when you put those three things together, what you get is somebody who is intelligent, they uh, they are intelligent in their field. They may not be actually uh, intelligent socially, but uh, whatever field of study they're in or whatever their career is, they're, they will ex succeed and exceed expectations because they have no problems walking all over people. It becomes this ultimate drive for them in the things that they do. Um, and they have very little empathy for other people. Uh, narcissism, um, if this guy is a, uh, a psychic, psychopath like we've you know we're coming to believe that he is it regardless of whether he has empathy or not he is going to have a deep-seated uh or rooted hatred of the things that he desires um because it's just instinctual but that where this really takes a turn is that in the psychopathic behavior or mind he doesn't really have empathy 
and he we would term it he has no conscience. So he will understand what's right or wrong, but not based on ethics and morals like you and I grew to know. He would grow to know right or wrong is something that can get him in trouble and get him caught. And ultimately, this whole thing revolves around a deviant uh, mindset of desire. Uh, and it, sometimes it's sexual, sometimes it's not sexual in nature, but it's very similar regardless because there is this deep-rooted desire that has to be satiated, and it gets darker and darker as time goes along if they go off a certain cliff. And I think when we look at this guy and the pattern that led him up to this, his pattern of behavior, and then now the report that we're getting in the way that occurred and the way that he fled, I think it's clear that this individual had no real empathy for what he was doing, um, but yet he knew that he could get in trouble. That's why he fled the scene so quickly, then acted like nothing was normal. And I, I don't know this. I haven't seen a toxicology report. I don't know if they'll get one because it was so far after. But I do believe that he was probably intoxicated in some way, shape, or form. He's a former heroin addict. And I think the sloppiness of this, because now we're all asking, how do they know what knife this guy used? And I could not believe this when I was reading today that he left the sheath of his K-Bar knife with the United States Marine Corps insignia on it. Uh, he left that there at the apartment complex. So um, that is where they got the uh, fingerprint, which led them to the uh, DNA that they pulled off of a fingerprint, which is pretty amazing. And um, and so that led them to the DNA analysis. Now, what happens there? He didn't pop on any DNA because he has never had his DNA taken. But with the relationship that law enforcement has now with these uh, DNA civilian profiles, so you can see where your family heritage is from, they were able to link his family and then find out that this guy in the family has a white Hyundai Elantra and, you know, the rest is history. It just took off from there. I want to so, ask you a question uh, very, about that because I think yeah. a lot of people were happy that that DNA was able to be used to find this alleged killer. However, that brings up a lot of privacy questions for a lot of Americans that have done right. these 23andMe things, and maybe they're not aware of the fact that law enforcement agencies work with these companies. They think they're just getting this innocent little genealogy thing for Christmas to find out where their ancestors are from. Now, it's great if you can catch a killer, but is this something in your work at the FBI that has been used before? Or is this kind of a new phenomenon given the popularity of those tests with Americans and people across the world? I think, well, it's definitely newer. Um, I, I got out of the Bureau in 2013. I don't know if those uh, were around at that point, but they certainly weren't as popular if they were. And they started to really take on this life. And here's the, the, the issue. Well, here's the issue that a lot of people are going to have is that, uh, and I can foresee this coming out somewhere eventually with a defense attorney, is that, you know, Koberger did not, give his DNA. Somebody in the family gave the DNA, um, but it's so close related. It's not like a fingerprint is yours. Nobody else has your fingerprint, but your relatives have pretty close to your DNA. So it's such a close match that they can narrow that down. So that's probably going to be an issue. I think somewhere along the way is that people didn't give their uh, DNA and they uh, have a what they believe is a reasonable expectation of privacy as to who they are through DNA. But I don't know if they took that up to the Supreme Court, they might be able to block that where law enforcement can't use it. But 
in these emergency circumstances, I would almost be positive that a court would give them a, a warrant for that. And they probably did get a warrant for it. But um, it's very interesting. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of people having second thoughts about getting these DNA tests right. now. But I mean, when you combine that with the number of people that that get jammed up or apply for a job of trust, there's just such a massive DNA database out there now. It's really hard to get past that. Somebody's going to have something that will connect you most likely. And it's great when you can use it to solve a murder. I don't think anybody has a, you know, any feelings for murderers out there who gave their DNA and some kind of genealogy test. We don't care. But it's just the average person's privacy that I think is going to raise some questions, as you said, moving forward. So it remains to be seen. We still don't really know his motive other than the fact that he's a freak. Um, we'll have to watch and see how this all plays out. I want to move on, though, to some news of the day, because it's always news of the day now. We're talking about FBI corruption. Now, I know that that agency is very near and dear to your heart, but it's got to be painful for someone like yourself to look at what it's become. So my question for you, you got out in 2013. When did it start becoming this way, the FBI, with the collusion with big tech, some of the, the things that they're doing that seem very partisan and very political in nature? Has that always been the case with this institution, or is this something that you see as relatively new? Well, the FBI has always been political. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover was about as political as you can get. So it started out there. He was an attorney, which I have always had an issue with, is that most of the people who have led the FBI were attorneys from the DOJ. And uh, the DOJ is as political as you can get. So, And you have a bunch of attorneys who are trying to make a name for themselves. Whereas in the Bureau, you have agents who are serving and they're not going anywhere. They're doing a 20-year career as an agent. So there's been very few. The last agent that we had that was a director was Louis Free. And so what, what you've seen is that the politics have changed. Politics is one thing, but ideological politics are totally different. And what I saw uh, when I got out in 2013, well, the entire time that I was in, uh, starting uh, right after the academy, the the academy is world class. You basically get a master's degree in criminology in 18 or 21 weeks, depending on what it is now. And uh, they really you come out of there with an amazing education on law enforcement and investigating. But as soon as you get to your uh, your office, in my case, it was New York, the politics quickly kick in. And uh, and so what occurs there is that there is a system of, of raising up box checkers where they will check boxes to get to the top. And once they get to a certain position, and everybody knows about this in the military, well, it's even worse in, in the FBI and the DOJ and other law enforcement agencies, is once you get to a certain point, you're, you're, no, you're no longer climbing a ladder. You're now getting pulled up by the people that want you there. And so... When an ideological leader gets in charge or leaders, what will happen is they will pick and choose who they pull up, and they will only pick people who are ideologically similar to them. At the same time, what started to occur, this is all the way back in the Clinton era, and Bill Clinton era, was affirmative action. And they used affirmative action to uh, not only get equal representation of all races, but they also used it to start pulling in people who had an ideological activist bend. And as we get closer and closer to uh, basically when Trump came into office, you saw this more and more 
to the point where when I was in, if I was dating somebody, you know, I, and I got stationed somewhere else, they're not going to pay for me and her to move. But if, if someone was gay, uh, they would pay for both of them as spouse, uh, and move the entire family. Wow. So I saw that when I was in, and I think what you get overall, Tommy, I'm sorry, I'm long winded, but what you get when you have a system that functions like this is you take competency and you set that to the side and you start having people who are uh, more and more narrow minded and they start making political decisions rather than and also they start uh, compromising their values and ethics that got them there in the first place uh, to a point where uh, we get what we have now, which is uh, at least one almost entire field office, which is in D.C., that is so far left that it is like a, uh, an, a a law enforcement branch of Antifa. Right. That's what's so confusing to a lot of civilian Americans who look at the FBI as a law enforcement agency. We know we certainly look at other law enforcement fields, Border Patrol, our police officers, our sheriff's departments. We look at them and we think, you know, at least of the last five years, they're seemingly more conservative, at least the officers and the agents on the ground, because, hello, conservatives are the ones that support their mission. But then it's a totally right. different ballgame when you get over to the FBI, because it seems to only go one way. We talk about people bringing in their ideological bent. That might be the case, but it only goes one way. It's not like you have conservatives that are coming in there going after Democrats. You just don't see it. And what was it about Donald Trump that deranged so many people? Because I'm sure there was partisanship going on for a long time, the little ideological bends and biases of certain people, but it was mm -hmm. Donald Trump that really turned up the heat and up the ante. What is it about him that made the FBI and other agencies and institutions so crazy that they felt like they had to step in with that insurance policy? Well, so, I mean, this, this Trump derangement syndrome uh, seems to be widespread, and I really do believe that that we'll find later on that that is a, uh, an actual psychological, well, I don't know if this uh, career field now in psychology would, would, would term it anything, but I do believe that there is something there that just sparks these people. It's almost as if they've been programmed. Um, I, I talk to people now that uh, are in the bureau and they work around the DOJ and they, they say it is like, uh, a, you know, 70 to 80% in the bureau of leftists and in the DOJ, it's almost a hundred percent of activist attorneys that are working in there and they are like robots. So I think when, when Mueller was in office, um, and that's who I served under it, when he was director, he systematically changed the bureau from a law enforcement entity into an intelligence gathering uh, entity. And they rewrote the Diog, which is our investigative Bible. This happened back in the early 2000s. And so, or the mid 2000s. And so what, what occurred, and I remember sitting in the training, was that they started becoming apologetic over, like, for instance, who uh, the FBI had investigated uh, back in the Hoover days and saying that, you know, activists and separatists and all these different people were wrongly targeted. And I remember looking at a detective and he looked at me and he was like, we were both like, um, isn't that who's destroying the country now right. is these activists and separatists. So it, this became a, a real issue because we were like, what, what does, what good is this Intel shift doing? Because it's not helping us as law enforcement officers. And I think as Trump got into office, what we see now is that there was a system being built 
and how to um, basically not collect intelligence off of criminals, but ideologically collect information on everyone. And if you don't agree with them, they're going to work with uh, private entities to suppress you and to suppress your speech. So if we know that they're doing this for sure at Twitter, and we know the, the, the breadth and scope of what they did at Twitter, we know they were involved with Facebook, but we don't know the, the breadth and scope of that. We can just assume off of what they did with Twitter that that's being done. That relationship is with all of social media companies and uh, Silicon Valley and uh, mainstream media, as well as large corporations, such as uh, how we travel through the air. Airline industries are thoroughly corrupted with the same ideology. So I and Wall Street's the same way. So I think what we see here now is that when Trump came into office, something occurred and uh, they saw that things were not going their way from the top down. And um, so they went into full effect. They went from covert to overt and went in full effect. And I think what we see now is that you can only do that for so long before you're, you're going to be found out, found out in some way, shape or form. The problem, though, Tommy, is that who's going to stop it? Who's going to stop I mean, it? And, and, and who really stop it? And who really cares is the problem. I care. You care. Right. Conservatives care. Conservatives, I do believe we are the silent majority. I do believe we make up the majority of this country. I believe this is a center-right country. However, getting people to care about these things when you have evidence and you have things piling up one after the other, the targeting of conservatives, whether it's the IRS, the FBI, the DOJ, I mean, targeting parents mm -hmm. in school board meetings, <laughs> the, the list is endless. And it just doesn't seem like people care enough to make a change. But I want to talk about the anniversary of January 6th tomorrow because the liberals are already licking their chops. I mean, they love this. Mm -hmm. They they are actually, in my opinion, so agitated about what's going on with the House right now because they're not able to talk about January 6th as much as they would like. But from your perspective, I'm very curious on this. Now looking back two years later, what do average Americans that have watched the news on this on both sides of the political divide, what are they missing about exactly what happened on that day? They're, they're missing the fact that they had a, an incredible opportunity to do something amazing, and they turned it into uh, a debacle of that was completely used by the left. So, you know, Martin Luther King never stormed anywhere, and, and he never, and he, you know, he dealt with very similar uh, operatives in the government. So, Martin Luther King showed us that you can show up in numbers and uh, hold your ground and things will change. We saw it in Virginia when they uh, basically had 20,000 people show up armed in Washington, D.C. to exercise their Second Amendment rights. They didn't tear anything down. They they even picked up their trash when they left and they they made an impact. So I think the American people need to realize two things. You don't show up and play warrior unless you're going to play warrior. But what you can do is show up and show that you are willing to step out of your home. The government gets afraid when they see that people are willing to take even the slightest action to say that they are wrong. And I think the American people could have shown up in that numbers, glad, uh, got their arms together and clasped their arms together. And they, they could have said the same thing Martin Luther King said, we will overcome.
and made a, a huge scene of it. But what occurred was we got to see how the government works. The government is controlled by the left. The government will take whatever you give them and they will make it into a mountain because they have media, big money donors, activists, and uh, the agencies that police this country all under their uh, their wing. And you see what they put on, the January 6th debacle, um, uh, the, the whole commission report, all these things, which nothing except a few arrests of people who were dumb on that day um, got taken in. That's it. So we see we see how this all works. And it's interesting that you, the way we've talked about this is um, we we have gone from a crawl, walk, run. You look at how the FBI should work when it comes with Idaho. And then you see how the FBI, when it comes to Twitter and social media and all this, how they are um, ideologically controlled from the top to do political bidding. And then you see on January 6th what it takes for American people to step out which is nothing. They just have to show up. But how if you don't do it right, then the left is going to put their mountain right over your head and crumble it all over you. And that's what they've done. It's exactly what they've done. And that's why that day was so infuriating for many reasons. But we did have such an opportunity and then it all went to hell. And now the Democrats will be able to use that in every election. They'll be able to use that to intimidate people, not to even utter the words voter fraud. And that, to me, is incredibly disappointing as a Trump supporter and as a conservative. That day was horrific for a lot of different reasons. But tomorrow we know the left is going to talk about it like it was some kind of tragedy. But really, they're all Mm -hmm. warm and fuzzy inside because they didn't want anything more than for that to happen the way that it happened. And they're gleeful about it. In fact, almost to the point where they can't really hide it anymore. Thank you for spending so much time with me and for going from top to bottom, left and right, all this (laughs) stuff. I hope to have you back very soon. And eventually I hope to have you here in Nashville, Tennessee, so we can go over some more stuff. You got it, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you. Up next, it's a new year, but the Democrats are up to their old tricks, projecting their own bigotry, racism, hatred, and intolerance on Republicans. My final thoughts are next. Republicans have had a rough week in the House, but it could be worse. We could be racist, bigoted, and intolerant like the Democrats. Cori Bush, you've outdone yourself this time. It's time for Final Thoughts. Yeah, the race for House Speaker has been anything but smooth sailing, but when Congressman Byron Donalds' name started to be thrown around as our potential speaker, the left did what the left does, show their disgusting and racist colors. Here is dishonorable Congresswoman Cori Bush tweeting out her fingers, but really out of her ass, about her colleague and fellow black American leader, Byron Donalds. Miss BLM is showing her true colors once again, showing us the only black lives or people she cares about are the ones that lie in her pockets or keep her in power. How dare she think she is the warden and decider of what is black enough or historic? Who died and made her the anointed one of anything? It's disgusting. It really is. But a true class act, Congressman Byron Donalds, a friend of this show, responded by not only dunking on her, but doing it with the utmost grace. Crab in a barrel is a very, very kind way of referring to what Miss Cori Bush really is. I'll leave it at that. Liberals, black and white, have some real nerve and audacity to keep up this BS. They do it with every black conservative that dares to part ways with the ownership the Democrat Party thinks it holds over them. They've done it to Senator Tim Scott, 
calling him an Uncle Tom, as if being a black Republican senator were a crime, and as, and as if saying America is not a racist country was somehow the most offensive thing these race baiters have ever heard. And they pulled the same crap with Larry Elder when he ran to replace Greasy Gavin Newsom in California, calling him the face of white supremacy, and even excusing some psycho green hair who not only dressed up in a gorilla suit to taunt him, but threw eggs at him as well. These liberals are some kind of deranged, but it's worse than that. It's worse than insanity. They are racist, true racists. They demean, degrade, and belittle any and all people of color who dare to think for themselves. Not only do their horrible economic policies hurt minority communities, not only does their open border burden inner city schools, not only are their lawless policies responsible for death, violence, and carnage in black and brown communities, they have the audacity to truly believe they own the black vote. Sick sick and wrong. Those are my final thoughts. I also want to wish my wonderful husband a very happy birthday. I love you from Nashville. God bless and take care.